morning. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 40 this morning. Last time we were in Acts, Paul had begun his second missionary journey, taking Silas with him. He traveled through Derby and Lystra, where young Timothy joined them. They continued ministering in the Roman provinces of Galatia and Phrygia, coming at last to the city of Troas in the far northwest corner of what we today call Turkey. From there, Paul received a vision of a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. Let's start reading in chapter 16, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Let's pray. Lord, we have committed our time this morning to you. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word. We pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would be at work this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been traveling across the area we now call Turkey until they came to the far northwest point, a city of Troas. Troas was the general location of the fabled Trojan War over a thousand years earlier. After receiving his vision, the group got on a ship and set sail for Macedonia. The trip from Troas to Neapolis in verse 11 was about as far as it is from here to Duluth. Neapolis was one of the seaports of Macedonia, and right in the middle of the voyage, a 1,600-foot mountain island called Samothrace juts out of the middle of the sea. It was a perfect landmark or stopping-off place for sailors making the journey. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 11, it says, We put out to sea. A little later, verse 13 says, we went outside the city gate and we expected to find a place of prayer. Who is this we? The best explanation is that Luke joined up with Paul in Troas. And Luke says we because now he includes himself as part of Paul's team. What that means is that we are now getting an eyewitness account of what happened. Anyway, from Neapolis, the group headed north about 10 miles or so to Philippi, which was one of the leading cities of that region, but still only about twice the size of Cannon Falls. Paul usually began his ministry in a synagogue, but Philippi was a Roman colony, which apparently didn't have enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. 
you had to have 10 Jewish men to have an official synagogue. So verse 13 says that on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Sometimes Jews met for prayer down by a body of water, which provided a place of ritual cleansing. And sure enough, down by the river, they met a group of women who were meeting for prayer in observance of the Sabbath. One of them was named Lydia, businesswoman from Thyatira in Western Turkey, who dealt in purple cloth, which was considered a luxury item. As a businesswoman and owner of a home that was apparently large enough to accommodate the little church that would soon form there, I'm pretty sure Lydia was quite wealthy. She listened to Paul's message, and both she and her household accepted Christ and were baptized. She insisted that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and probably Luke stay in her home. And that is where the first church in Europe began. But trouble always seems to follow Paul wherever he goes, and Philippi was no different. Let's read about it, starting in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had been, had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. So one day, Paul and his group were on their way to the place of prayer when they encountered a fortune teller. She was a slave who earned a lot of money for her owners with her fortune telling. Now, I think most fortune tellers are frauds, but this one was apparently the real deal because we find that she was demon-possessed and quite successful. In verse 17, we find that for some reason, she started following Paul and his group around, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, I would think that Paul would be happy about that. But after several days of this, Paul became annoyed. I've wondered why was Paul annoyed? After all, this was advertisement for his ministry. The short answer is that we don't know. All we have is what the text says. One possibility is that most Philippians associated the most high God with Zeus. So for this fortune teller to say that Paul and his group were servants of the most high God, it may have left people with the impression that they were servants of Zeus. It may also be that after many days, her shouting became more distracting and irritating than helpful and was maybe even driving people away. Whatever the reason, Paul eventually discerned that what was really going on was demon possession. So verse 18 says, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So Paul healed a demon possessed woman. What wonderful news, she was free. Unfortunately, not everyone was very excited about this because she once delivered from her, once she was delivered from her demon possession, she could no longer do fortune telling. Verses 19 to 21 say, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, 
They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, when Paul preached in synagogues, many Jews were offended when Paul insisted that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And they were especially offended when Paul would speak of Jesus as God. They thought that was blasphemy, which was no doubt why they had Paul stoned in Lystra. But Philippi was a Roman colony. They didn't care about Jewish doctrines. Their concerns were much more down to earth. In verse 19, we see that the real issue for them was economic. Their hope was gone, or of making money was gone. But that wasn't likely to win the town magistrates over to their side. That was the slave owner's problem, not something the town needed to be involved in. So the slave owners would need to try a different tactic. In verse 22, they said that Paul and his companions were advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, Philippi was, a, was proud of its Roman heritage. In 44 BC, after Julius Caesar was assassinated by Crassus and Brutus, Mark Antony and Octavian commanded a Roman legion to avenge Caesar's death. The decisive battle came at Philippi which supported the winning side of Antony and Octavian. As a reward, some of the winning Roman soldiers were released from duty and allowed to settle there in Philippi. These retired Roman soldiers were undoubtedly died-hard Roman patriots, and Philippi was a favored Roman city. But now Paul and his group are proclaiming some guy named Jesus as Lord and Savior, and those were titles used for Caesar. The Romans would only recognize Caesar as Lord and Savior. To preach Jesus as Lord and Savior could be seen as treason against Rome. And very many people from Philippi joined this new religious cult. It could endanger their status as a favored Roman city. I suspect that is why they said Paul and his companions were advocating customs unlawful for us. But I want to emphasize again that this wasn't the real motive for attacking Paul. The real motive was money. They lost their income and wanted revenge. Folks, when people reject the gospel, it's often for ulterior, hidden motives. There was once a world-famous world philosopher named Aldous Huxley who died in 1963. He had enough honesty to admit in writing that the real reason he became an atheist is that atheism gave him political and sexual freedom. He said that was the case with every atheist he knew at that time. Those who reject Christ often have ulterior motives. For the Philippian merchants, their motive was financial. Verses 22 to 24 tell us what happened next. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he had received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas were severely beaten with rods, thrown in jail, and had their feet placed in stocks. Stocks was part of the punishment. The more they wanted to make you suffer, 
the more they would use the stocks to spread your legs farther or farther apart. Now, if I were in stocks after having been severely beaten with rods, I'd probably be moaning and groaning, but not Paul and Silas. Let's read about it in verse 25 and 26. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. Modern prisons have beds, heat and air conditioning, three meals a day, medical care, TVs, libraries, and exercise rooms. That obviously was not Paul's situation. He and Silas had none of that, and being confined in stocks means they couldn't even get up to stretch. Probably had to go to the bathroom right where they sat. On top of it all, they had been severely beaten and probably had big welts, if not open bleeding wounds, and no Tylenol for the pain. No wonder they were still up at midnight. I'm pretty sure the last thing I would be doing is singing. But that's exactly what Paul and Silas were doing, singing hymns to God. Well, if the singing didn't wake the jailer, the earthquake certainly did. Verses 27 and 28 say, The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now the jailer is about to kill himself because it was dark and he assumed that if the prison doors were open, the prisoners had escaped. And the penalty for allowing prisoners to escape would be death. The jailer undoubtedly thought that suicide would be much less painful than what the Romans would have in store for him. In fact, it's possible that the jailer was a slave, in which case the penalty could be crucifixion. The jailer was undoubtedly shocked to find that everyone was still there. Like the prisoners, this jailer had probably heard Paul and Silas talking, praying out loud, and singing hymns to God. So verses 29 and 31 say, The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, in this context, to believe in Jesus is not just to believe that he exists. It's not just believing certain doctrines about Jesus, as important as those doctrines are. It's not even trusting that he will save you. But I'll come back to that later. Verses 32 to 34 say, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. We find in verse 35 that the next morning, the town magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the orders, release those men. Now we find something fascinating about Paul's personality. He refused to leave. In verse 37, Paul told the officers who were sent to release him, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison? And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. 
the town magistrates had apparently ordered Paul to be beaten without even giving him a hearing and a chance to defend himself legally. And it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. Those town magistrates could be in serious hot water with the Romans for what they had just done. And Paul was not about to let the matter go, matter go unnoticed. He demanded that they publicly escort him out of jail. Now, I suspect Paul wanted the people of Philippi to know that he and Silas had been unjustly and illegally treated and that the new Christians in Philippi were not supporting criminals. After their release, we find in verse 40 that Paul and Silas met with the new church in Lydia's house, and then they hit the road. Next stop, Thessalonica, where, surprise, surprise, trouble awaits them again. Now, I want to close this morning with just two observations. First, Luke's historical reliability in this story can be verified by geography, archaeology, and secular sources outside of the Bible. So, for example, Troas, Samothrace, Neapolis, and Philippi not only exist, they are also located in the right order for a sea trip from Troas to Philippi. And we know that Neapolis was a seaport and Philippi was a Roman colony and a prominent city of that area. And it even has a small river nearby, as Luke says. Luke says Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira. And we know that Thyatira was a center of the production of purple cloth. Later in the story, we find that Paul and Silas were beaten with rods. And we know that was a characteristic form of Roman punishment. And the end of the story about Paul exerting his rights as a Roman citizen fits well what we know about ancient Roman law. Not only this, but the historical reliability of this account is verified by Paul himself in three letters that even critics acknowledge that Paul actually wrote. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul mentions his suffering in Philippi. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says he was spitefully treated in Philippi. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul mentioned being beaten with rods. The point is that Luke gets all of these little details right, just as you would expect from someone who is actually with Paul on the trip. Second, Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In the context of the New Testament, to believe in Jesus is not just believing that he existed. It is not just believing that, that God or that he was God who died on a cross and rose again for our sins, as important as those beliefs are. In the New Testament, believing in Jesus is much deeper than that. In the movie, We Were Soldiers, which is based on true events of the Vietnam War, Mel Gibson plays the role of a Christian colonel who genuinely cared for the men under his command, and they knew it. He promised to be the first one on the battlefield and the last one off, and to leave no one behind. When the battle began, a violent and brutal battle, the colonel wasn't sitting safely in some office. He led his men into battle, fighting shoulder to shoulder with them. He encouraged them, comforted them, prayed for them and with them, and cried over them. In the movie, his men loved him and trusted him and would follow him anywhere. In other words, they believed in him. When the Bible says to trust or believe in Jesus, that's the kind of believing it's talking about. Jesus is our colonel, our king, who suffered and died for us and rose again. 
he calls us to believe in him, to follow him. Now, for the purposes of my illustration, it's important to note that in the movie, some of the men were leaders, but most were not. None of them were superheroes, though some did heroic things. Many made mistakes and messed up. Many failed. They were all afraid, but they were devoted to their colonel. They believed in him. They followed him. We will never be perfect. We mess up and fail. But our colonel, our king, calls us to believe in him or follow him. The first step, the outward symbol of induction into our king's service, is baptism. Like inductees into the military service who raise their right hand and swear allegiance to the Constitution, baptism is publicly declaring allegiance to our king. It tells the world whose side you're on. When Lydia and her household believed in Jesus, they got baptized. When the Philippian jailer and his household believed in Jesus, they got baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, but it publicly declares your allegiance to King Jesus. It tells the world whose side you're on. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that most people here this morning, that for most people here this morning, you are their King and Lord. But Father, if there's anyone here who has not committed their heart and life to you in faith, we pray that you would convict them, draw them to yourself. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.